listening to the Bible 126 show. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Turn to the book of Judges. And we're in chapter 21, the last chapter. We've been through some pretty grim chapters last time, 19 and 20 where we had the Levite and his concubine, and we had this incredible chapter, a chapter that offends almost everybody that reads it, understandably. And yet it's, it seems that these chapters that we're, gonna, we're into were appended by the writer to the book of Judges. We believe that some of those events occurred much earlier. But they're sort of put here as an appendix to dramatize just how confused, just how depraved, the nation had become. The Levite had this concubine, which is uh, something that's not in our culture, but sort of a second-class wife. Um, we use that term very broadly, but it had very specific meanings in those in those cultures. Uh, she was unfaithful to him, and uh, after four months, he goes to reconcile, parties with her father-in-law for a while. But then anyway, he gets into a town, Gibeah, where the men of the town attack the visitors, threaten his life, really, apparently, end up taking her all night. In the morning she was dead. The Levite divides her into 12 pieces, sends her to the 12 coasts, and that creates a national outrage. And that national outrage results, of course, in them approaching the tribe of Benjamin to turn over these guys from this town that indulged in this outrage, and the tribe of Benjamin refused. Big mistake. And so we have a civil war where the tribes of Israel, 11 of them, organize a 400,000-man army to attack these 26,000 Benjamites and virtually uh, wipe them out. We, uh, we've been through a whole history in the book of Judges, of course, and we'll talk more about that in our final review next time. It was this last time we had... Uh, Micah and the Danites, remember, and, and then we had the Levite, his concubine, and uh, the civil war with the Benjamites. Tonight we're going to take a look at the strange aftermath, because the tribe of Benjamin was practically wiped out. Because of the civil war, there were only 600 left of the tribe of Benjamin. And that suddenly, Israel wakes up to the fact that maybe they've overreacted here a bit. We'll also talk about the strange slaughter at Jabesh Gilead, which comes in this chapter. We'll talk about the 400 virgins from Jabesh Gilead, and we'll talk about 200 kidnapped wives. So this this chapter isn't quite as dismal as the previous two, but it's strange. Now you may recall the tribe of Benjamin had 26,700 total uh, back in chapter 20. The 11 tribes had 400,000, but they lost in the first engagement about 22,000. And the, then the second engagement, they lost 18,000. So they lost about 40,000 going to the third one. The tribe Benjamin apparently only lost about 1,100 so far. But then in that third engagement, Benjamin lost 18,000. 
and then subsequently 5,000, and then another 2,000, you may recall, in chapter 20. And so when you add that all up, they lost 25, 100 in uh, those engagements. And when you add that to the ones they lost in the first three, you, ha- you have only 600 left that escaped to the Rock of Rimmon. This is just by way of review because we're going to touch on this as we get into chapter 21. So let's jump in by that review. Judges 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, There shall not any of us give his daughter unto Benjamin to wife. They were so upset when they heard, learned about the outrage on the Levites' concubine that they really swore they were going to get Benjamin. And one of the oaths they took was they were not to give their daughter to a member of the tribe Benjamin for a wife. They're going to end up wanting to read the fine print of that because they're going to try to find a way around that if they can. But they made that vow. And you may recall when we went through Leviticus, we are to take, if you're going to make a vow, take it seriously. The vows are always voluntary. But if you take a vow, you've got to stick with it. The people came to the house of God and abode there until even before God and lifted up their voices and wept sore and said, O Lord God of Israel, why is this come to pass in Israel that there should be today one tribe lacking in Israel? They're suddenly waking up to the fact that they have virtually wiped out one of the twelve tribes. Now, you should understand the predicament that they put the Benjamites in because the Torah prohibited a member of Israel to marry outside the nation Israel. That was in the Torah. That wasn't just a, a tribal custom. It was the law of Moses. So these 600 Benjamites were put in a strange predicament because they couldn't marry outside the nation, and yet the nation had sworn not to give them their daughters. And they're suddenly waking up to the fact that they're, they not only have they practically wiped out the tribe of Benjamin, but they've eliminated any way for them to legally to continue. Uh, there's another matter lurking behind this text that isn't obvious until you study it. There's a secondary problem faced by the Israelites, and they apparently also made a solemn oath to put to death any Israelites that failed to assemble at Mizpah. When they rallied around to uh, Mizpah, anyone that didn't provide their, their uh, soldiers was considered uh, treasonous. So anyway, the people come to the house of God, and they were there all day until evening, their anger now has cooled off, of course, and they're, they realize that they've just about eliminated a tribe from Israel, and this made them weep. We'll see it here and also in verse 15. And the possibility that destroyed the tribe is probably the primary thing that they're upset about. There's several problems they've got. And so in verse 4, it came to pass the next day on the morrow that the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Well, that's about time. All these horrible events uh, caused their uh, emotions to rise. But we didn't see them go to the Lord to find out what to do. They reacted from the flesh. And we saw the horrible, horrible results of that civil war last time. So they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Scholars debate as to whether there's real evidence here that they repented and acknowledged their sin. One would think they did, and yet uh, that is not expressed here explicitly, so some scholars are still quite critical of the whole situation here. The Lord had previously revealed His will towards them, but there's uh, no evidence that they received His word after the battle and so forth regarding all these things. So instead of getting directions from Him, they really relied on their own wisdom, which is obviously risky. 
I suspect the Lord wasn't too pleased with the tribe of Benjamin either because they uh, they hadn't confessed their sin and they hadn't admitted they were wrong. So anyway, we've got 600 soldiers stranded on the Rock of Rimmon that also we see no evidence that they're seeking God's face. So this whole situation is still pretty dismal. They were frightened. They were fleeing a victorious army. But uh, if somebody had suggested that we all meet at Shiloh at the house of the Lord and to work this thing out, there might have been a whole different result. But anyway, we get to verse 5. The children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel that came not up with the congregation unto the Lord? For they had made a great oath concerning him that came not up to the Lord to Mitzvah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. So they made two oaths. See, they're very quick with these oaths. It turns out that they've got a secondary matter that we're going to deal with when we get to verse 8. The children of Israel repented them for Benjamin, their brother, and said, There is one tribe cut off from Israel this day. How shall we do for wives for them that remain, seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them of our daughters to wives? That's the problem they face. What do they do? If they don't give them their wives, they've got a problem because the Benjamites will either not continue as a tribe or they will do so by marrying pagans. On the other hand... They've made an oath before the Lord not to give them their their daughters. What's the solution? Well, uh, we've got to find 600 wives somewhere. That's the the problem. If they're going to reestablish their their, uh, tribe. And uh, where would they come from? So, uh, what one is there of the tribes of Israel that came not up to Mizpah? To the Lord, and behold, there came none to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. Now, Jabesh Gilead was a, a, in effect a renegade group. They didn't provide troops, and so they were under the judgment of the nation for not having done that. For the people were numbered, and behold, there were none of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead there. See, as they researched the secondary problem, they discover they've got a problem here. Now, Jabesh Gilead is about nine miles southeast of Bethshan, about two miles east of the Jordan River. It's on what you might call the East Bank. And uh, it probably, according, it was in the territory, eastern territory of Manasseh. And it was, according to Josephus, the capital of Gilead. This ban that they imposed on them, uh, the necessity then of uh, punishing the inhabitants for not joining in on the uh, crusade against Benjamin. People were numbered. Behold, there were none of the inhabitants of Gilead there. And the congregation sent thither 12,000 men of the valiantest and commanded them, saying, Go and smite the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, with the women and the children. Rough times. They didn't mess around. Now, it appears we always assume that the 12 parts of that concubine were sent to each of the 12 tribes. And along with it was a warning that any tribe or city that didn't respond to help fight Benjamin would be treated in the same way. That's the, that's the inference we draw. The men of Jabesh Gilead understood what was at stake when they remained at home. So there is a view among some scholars that the slaughter that results is something they brought on their own heads. That's, that's a view. And this is the same kind of warning you're going to discover King Saul uh, will give in the first Samuel 11, something very similar to this kind of thing. Anyway, getting back to uh, verse 11 here. And this is the thing that ye shall do. Ye shall utterly destroy. These are the marching orders, the rules of engagement for these 12,000 
special troops. This is the thing ye shall do. Ye shall utterly destroy every male, every woman that hath lain by man. Notice what's missing here. Every male and every woman that hath lain by a man. Who's missing? Virgins. There'll be about 400 of those. And they're going to round those up to solve their problem with Benjamin. Because they're Jewish. They're part of the nation. Even though they're being punished for this, for their non-participation here. You know, somebody figured that out. That, aha, we've got a solution, a partial solution to one of our problems. They found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins that had known no man by lying with any male, and they brought them unto the camp to Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. 400 virgins. Um, so that gives them, they've solved two-thirds of their problem. Out of 600 guys, they now have 400 gals to help the tribe of Benjamin continue. The whole congregation sent some to speak to the children of Benjamin that were in the rock of Rimmon to call peaceably unto them. They actually, what they're doing here, they're offering a formal uh, offer of peace, a shalom. It implies a restoration to, to their participation in the covenant of the nation. These men uh, had been in, up there in the rocks for four months by now, according to Judges chapter 20, if you may recall from last time. But now they could take their brides and go home. But boy, what a price. What a price was paid. Such are the wages of sin. For your notes, you look at Numbers 31 and Deuteronomy 20 for some precedence here. In verse 14, And Benjamin came again at that time, and they gave them wives which they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead, and yet so they sufficed them not. In other words, there's not enough. It's only 400 among 600 guys. And the people repented them for Benjamin because of the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. So then the elders of the congregation said, How shall we do for wives for them that remain, seeing the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for them that be escaped of Benjamin, that a tribe be not destroyed out of Israel. they got a very serious heritage problem here. They want the tribe of Benjamin to continue. They've got to somehow solve this. But here's the problem. They made a vow. Howbeit we may not give them wives of our daughters, for the children of Israel have sworn, saying, Cursed be he that giveth a wife to Benjamin. It's interesting that in all this confusion they take their vows seriously. It's too bad they didn't take the Lord more seriously. This whole thing might have been avoided. But anyway, so they got a problem here. But fortunately, they had on staff some really good attorneys. And they looked at the language very, very carefully. What they couldn't do is give their daughters as wives to Benjamin. But what could they do? They could look the other way if their daughters were kidnapped. <laughs> you, you think I'm kidding. No, <laughs> this, is, this is not one of my flippancies. This is, this is really what's going on here. Then they said, Behold, there is a feast of the Lord in Shiloh yearly, in a place which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway, that goeth up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south of Lebanon. See, somebody remembered that many of the virgins from the tribes participated in this annual feast. Big feast. Conveniently, the girls of Shiloh, that'd be about 13 miles north by northeast of Mizpah, 
would soon be participating in this local har- harvest feast where they would dance in the fields near the vineyards. Lebanon, by the way, is about three miles north of, Sh- uh, of Shiloh. So this is all you know within reasonable distances here. So therefore they commanded the children of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in wait in the vineyards, and see, and behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in dances, then come ye out of the vineyards and catch you every man his wife of the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. Kidnap them, that's what he's saying. <laughs> see, they, they had this plan, and which is based on a loophole in their oath. See, the Israelites couldn't give their daughters, that's mentioned in verse 1, 7, and 18. Uh, to the Benjamites, but said nothing about them not being able to let the daughters be taken. Each guy would hide near the place. Each guy would pick one out and take her home. <laughs> and they wouldn't be violating their oath here because they wouldn't be giving the girls. The girls would be taken. It's a matter of semantics. But they agreed to follow the plan. So it shall be when their fathers or their brethren come unto us to complain that we shall say unto them, Be favorable of them for our sakes, because we reserved not to each man his wife in the war, for we did not give unto them at this time that ye should be guilty. And the children of Benjamin did so, and took them wives according to the number of them that danced, whom they caught. And they went and returned unto their inheritance, and repaired the cities, and dwelt in them. So these 600 guys got their brides. 400 from Jabesh Gilead, and uh, 200 here from whatever virgins were participating in this feast. The 600 men got their, got their brides. The 11 tribes kept their vow. The citizens of Gibeah were punished. And the tribe of Benjamin was taught a lesson. And yet, the 12 tribes are still saved. That's sort of the summary in, in, in the most constructive way one might put it. The 600 men of Benjamin got their wives, went back to their, get their inheritance. They cleaned up the debris, repaired the cities, and started life all over again. But all this carnage of chapters 19, 20, and 21 happened because one Levite didn't have the courage to stand up for what was right and to treat his wife honorably. Once again, just remember the story of Jonathan and Micah and the Danites and all of that? The problems start in the home. The problems start in the home. The earlier chapters we talked about, these all trace back to problems in the home. As the home goes, so goes the nation. Boy, what are the homes like in our culture? Scary, isn't it? Scary. The research is really coming through that these divided marriages are hard on the kids. The kids do not respond as they would in a, in a consolidated home. There are problems in job retention, problems in intimacy, problems in subsequent marriages. We're reaping the whirlwind. We've lost the sanctity of a commitment in our homes. And now we see we've lost the sanctity of a commitment on Wall Street. The uh, decay morally ethically in our culture is a shock. There's some interesting parallels. We're going to explore some of those next time. I don't want to get into all that here, but but uh, all this horrible stuff 
had its roots in the home. Verse 24 and 25. And the children of Israel departed thence at that time, every man to his tribe and to his family, and went out from thence, every man to his inheritance, his land, in other words. So you can be very critical of the people with all their scheming, but uh, they did get around their oath and they saved the tribe of Benjamin by doing so. It's interesting that among these uh, Benjamites are some very famous people that wouldn't have been there had they not done this. In fact, uh, uh, the last phrase here before we leave, this, we leave the text is, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We've had this now for the fourth time that the writer tells us there's no king in Israel. We're going to come back to that. And that every man did what was right in his own eyes. Value relativism was extant. The tribe of Benjamin... Descended from Jacob's twelfth son, you may recall. He was the youngest. He was the darling that Joseph, when he's prime minister of the world, maneuvered to get next to his throne. There are all kinds of predictions about Benjamin in Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 33. Each of those chapters have prophecies on each of the tribes. Let you check that out on your own. Always remember Genesis 49. That's when Jacob prophesies over each of his twelve sons. And Deuteronomy 33, that's sometimes called the Song of Moses, where Moses talks about each of the twelve tribes. Little cryptic prophecies of each one. His, the, the, the tribe of Benjamin formed the rear of the third division of the four divisions of the, on the march in Israel. They encamped under the standard of Ephraim on the west side. And, uh, they were celebrated as bowmen and slingers, as we brought out earlier. Remember now in Judges 5, they assisted against Sisera. They were oppressed by the Ammonites in chapter 10. Obviously here we've read they almost annihilated by, by protecting the men of Gibeah. Uh, and of course the remnant were provided wives, as we've just looked at in this chapter. They furnished the first king of Israel. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. They'd been wiped out. They wouldn't have had Saul. Interestingly enough, though, they ultimately revolt against the house of, uh, from the house of Saul in 2 Samuel 3. And they remained faithful to Judah, to David, interestingly enough. They furnished an army to Jehoshaphat. There are some very celebrated people that were Benjamites. Ehud, you remember in chapter Judges chapter 3? Ehud was a Benjamite. We referred to him several times. House of Kish, of course, and thus the Saul, the first king, Abner, Elahan. These are we haven't encountered those yet. That'll be in Samuel, and of course another very famous Benjamite, that to whom we owe a great debt. Saul, another Saul. It's interesting that they're both Sauls; they're both Benjamites. The Book of Judges. We looked at Micah and the Danites. We've looked at Levite and his concubine. We've seen the civil war with the Benjamites. And uh, next time, in the next session, we're going to recap the whole book, try to put it in, and try to summarize some of the key lessons that we can draw from it. That's our plan. After we do that, we're going to uh, talk about the book of Ruth. We'll have two sessions. Uh, the book, the book of Ruth, will be it'd be astonishing, an astonishing contrast to the gloomy um, depths of Judges. And yet, the book of Ruth occurs in the days of the judges. It's a very, very intriguing contrast. And it seems since uh, we had the time in our in our budget, so to speak, here for the book of Judges, we thought we'll just add the book of Ruth to it, even though we've we've uh, taught it before. With uh, I think we packaged it with Esther in our commentaries, but it really belongs here in a, in a chronological sense. Book of Ruth, book of prophecy. It is the book of the Old Testament that really profiles the church in some surprising ways. And we'll look at that. It's probably our most popular study.
It's the most astonishing to many. And you will not understand the book of Revelation chapter 5 unless you really understand the book of Ruth. So therein lies this. Now this whole business, again, all through the book of Judges, we have four characteristics. There was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in their own eyes. There was disparagement of the word of God. And they were in bondage. Bondage to oppressors, bondage to the flesh, bondage to pagan worship. Now the reason there was no king in Israel is why? Why is there no king in Israel today? Because they had a chance to choose. They chose Barabbas instead. They chose Barabbas instead. That's future. I'm not trying to mix chronology here, but I'm saying that the same four characteristics are in our world today. There's no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what they think is right in their own eyes. Value relatives. You have your truth, I have mine, you know. And the, 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 the disparagement of the word of God and, of course, bondage. The world is in bondage to the flesh. There's no king because they said, we will not have this man to reign over us in Luke 19. There was Barabbas, who was guilty, had done nothing to deserve his reprieve, and the innocent took his place, and he was made free. All the guilt, shame of Barabbas was put on the innocent, and his freedom, his glory, his was given to Barabbas. You know, what's interesting is to realize that we're in Barabbas' shoes. Everything that was true of Barabbas is true of us. We're also guilty. And the king took it upon himself. It's astonishing, as you study your Bible, to begin to embrace the glory, the power of just who Jesus really is. And to realize that he went to that cross for you and I and paid for all of this stuff. All this stuff we read in Judges is true today. Not very popular, but very descriptive. Doesn't pull its punches. It's pretty graphic, disturbingly so. A chronicle of people rebelling against God, a, a chronicle of people when they finally get crushed, put out a plea to God, and he sends them a deliverer and, and delivers them from their oppression. And what do they do as soon as they're out? Right back at it. The whole book of Judges is a, is a downhill spiral. And it's going to be that way until the king takes his throne. I'm always intrigued by these people that want to save the planet Earth. Can't save the planet Earth. It's coming under judgment. The fact that everyone in those days did what they thought was best is a, the ultimate indictment of those days. And that's the ultimate indictment of our days too. The value of relativism is our ethic of the land. So the book of Judges closes with that verse as a final restatement of human failure and the deplorable spiritual condition of those days. Now, many people believe it was written by Samuel. He was the penman to put this chronicle together. So the book really sets the stage for First Samuel and uh, the circumstances that ultimately lead to a king. You should understand something, by the way. It's so, so commonly thought that the king was given to Israel because they asked for it, because they wanted to be like all the other nations around them. And there's a lot of things wrong about the way they asked for a king. 
and you get the impression superficially that God reluctantly concedes and gives himself. And that's all true in a sense, but it misses a key point. God had a plan to give them a king all along. You're going to discover that in the book of Ruth. David as a king is predicted, prophesied in the book of Ruth, during the time of the judges. They were impatient. They wanted a king for the wrong reasons, so he gave them Saul, in a sense, to make a point. Because David wasn't old enough yet. But you'll be startled to discover that the reign of David was predicted, in a sense, in the book of Ruth. We'll study that when we get there. Israel suffers under all these enemies, was repeatedly the beneficiary of God's grace, who, uh, uh, when they finally turned to him. And so the book of Judges demonstrates God's justice, but also his grace, his forgiveness, his justice in punishing sin on the one hand, his grace in forgiving sin on the other. Therein lies the study tonight. It's short because we ran out of chapters. And I want to reserve next time for an overview. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for what you're doing in our lives. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate your word and guide us that we might behold what you would have of us in these days. We do pray, Father, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would be our teacher. That as we plunge into your word, Father, we pray that you would guide us, lead us clearly. That we might grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And that we might be more fruitful stewards of what you've given us to do. We thank you, Father, that you have had us on your heart before the foundation of the world. We do pray, Father that we would be open to hear what you have for us. As we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.